This is Sphere, a podcast on the history and evolution of global environmental governance. Hi, this is Eric Paglia, a researcher in the Sphere Project at KTH in Stockholm. Here in Episode 5 of the Sphere Podcast, I'll be speaking with Frank Biermann, Professor of Global Sustainability Governance at Utrecht University. Frank is the director of the ERC Global Goals Project and founder of the Earth System Governance Project. We wanted to invite Frank onto the podcast to tell us about his recent research, which as always is highly relevant for international politics, and to explain his planetary worldview. I don't know, Keith, can you say planetary worldview or is that just being redundant? Well, Eric, I think you can probably get away with it in this case, but why don't you let me take over from here? So in this episode... Professor Frank Biermann will provide an environmental justice perspective on the planetary boundaries framework. Tell us why he thinks the idea of environmental policy is outdated and explain why geoengineering is, for the most part, fraught with peril and essentially ungovernable. Basically, a very bad idea. All right. Thanks, Keith. I couldn't have said that better myself. Anyway, so in the interview, I start by asking Frank to explain what distinguishes the concept of Earth system governance from traditional ideas of international environmental politics, and why it's a useful framework for understanding and acting upon global environmental governance issues. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric, for for asking this question, which is the, the, the basis of the Earth system governance project that we have set up 10 years ago. Essentially, my take is that we observe a fundamental reshaping of the entire planet, of the entire Earth system. Uh, that means that people are today no longer passive, as they have been centuries ago, passive to the forces of nature. But today, people have turned into active agents of planetary transformation at massive scale. This includes climate change. It includes the transformation of land, of biodiversity, of ecosystems, transformations of the oceans, the wide distribution of plastics, harmful substances, uh, nuclear remnants of nuclear explosions and nuclear energy, changes in the sediment patterns of many places. Uh, For example, if you take my country where I'm based, Netherlands, it's, it's totally remade by humans in the last hundreds of years. And people have come to call this fundamental transformation of the planetary system, human influence, the Anthropocene, the age of planetary history that is totally dominated by one species alone, which is humans, and therefore the name Anthropocene has been coined by Paul Wilson uh, 20 years ago and has caught on tremendously. Um, There are critics of the term Anthropocene, and I actually also have my own criticism. So people say that the term Anthropocene is hiding the inequalities uh, of our planet. People say it has underemphasized the rule of capitalism, for example, and to try to have a term that is based on the word capitalism, or that inequalities have not been taken into account. Um, and therefore, some people have proposed other terms, but none of these other alternative terms is really caught on because alternative terms normally describe only one element and not the entire universal predicament in which we are. So therefore, the term Anthropocene is still the one most preferred, even though it must not hide the inequalities that we have. So the point of departure for me and many scholars in the social science today is 
how can we describe the situation from the perspective of governance, of politics, of institutional analysis? And here, I believe that the terms that have been used so far, such as environmental policy, are fundamentally outdated. I can talk about this later, maybe. But also other terms, such as sustainable development, are not really able to really encompass the, the challenges that we have here from a governance or political perspective. And so therefore, I've coined uh, 15 years ago, and it has been also developed by many colleagues together in the last 10, 15 years, a new paradigm in a way to respond to these challenges. And this is what we call earth system governance. So the idea is that the challenge of governance is to stabilize the key components of the earth system that are affected and changed and transformed by human species, socio-ecological systems at planetary scale. So this situation and this governance challenge we describe as earth system governance. And to further support this idea, um, a research network has emerged, which has become the Earth System Governance Project, which is a large research network of scholars who are dealing with these challenges at global scale, but also at the local scale, always with a planetary perspective. And this is the Earth System Governance Project. I invite everybody who is listening to this program to check out the website, the earthsystemgovernance.org website. Uh, to explore what we have done and what we are doing, the many conferences, the many projects, the many workshops and webinars that are organized by this network, and maybe also to join. It's an open network. Everybody can join. Everybody become a fellow of the Earth System Governance Project. It's a fantastic activity, and I hope that uh, many more people will join in the years to come, and maybe also some of those who are listening here. The website is earthsystemgovernance.org, and you can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, and we have a newsletter as well. Thank you. And of course, Earth, Earth System Governance as a concept comes from, I guess, originally from the idea of Earth System Science, a, uh, a field that really uh, blossomed in the 1980s. And it's interesting you mentioned scales there, Frank, and about uh, you don't just look at the global, because when you hear of Earth System Governance, you think of perhaps you're looking at things just on this sort of global governance, a very sort of high-level meta perspective. But you also say that this framework, this approach, can also go down to the uh, to the local level. Perhaps you can explain how that works. Absolutely. No, this is a very, very important point that you are making, um, that any activity that is dealing, for example, with decarbonization efforts in a particular country or the protection of biodiversity or the protection of the oceans, any of these activities are related to Earth system governance. So the challenge is a planetary one. The transformation is of the entire Earth system, but the elements are quite often local. And that means that most researchers who are affiliated with the Earth System Governance Project, most researchers actually study local processes. So we have people who are studying land use change management in Africa, or people who are studying decarbonization in Sweden, or people who study biodiversity management in Latin America. So many, many local problems are being studied by Earth System Governance researchers, but always with a system approach, an approach that looks not only on the environmental parts, but always as a socio-ecological system perspective, and also this view of global teleconnections, global interdependence, and a planetary perspective. So this makes it different from research in the past, but importantly, it's not only about, let's say, the United Nations. It's always about local issues at the same time in a multi-level, 
planetary perspective. This is very important to point out. I'm very grateful for this question. We'll talk more about the planetary in a moment. But first, I wanted to get, uh, you mentioned there, Frank, that you think that in one of the articles, actually, you've gone into some detail about this idea that traditional environmental policy and calling it such is uh, somewhat outdated. Can you perhaps uh, elaborate on that, please? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this was a paper that was actually an invited paper for the, the journal Environmental Politics. They had an anniversary to celebrate and invite me to a paper. And I reflected on the term of the journal and the entire community, the environmental policy paradigm. And I came to the conclusion that the term environmental policy actually does not fully capture the, the challenges I had and a bit also the challenges that I have just described when I discussed our system governance. Number one, an argument that I made in my contribution is that environmental policy still assumes a dichotomy of humans versus nature or humans versus an environment that surrounds people. And this is something that is totally outdated. I'm not the first to make this point. It has been made in the 1980s, 1990s already, but it has not really fully caught on. I believe environmental policy still as a paradigm and also as a practice is based very much on this dichotomy. It also raises the problem uh, that the idea of environment assumes also that there is environment or nature which is independent of human actions and human activities. And this is also an outdated idea. It's outdated and totally contradicts all that has been said and written so far on the Anthropocene that assumes that anything outside the species of humans is no longer independent of human activities. But there is no such thing as an environment that is out there. There's no such thing as a nature that is out there. Everything is being interconnected with human activities in the form of social ecological systems. And this is one of the criticisms of the concept where I believe it's outdated. It has to be replaced by a more system-oriented perspective. Number two is um, that I believe that, that the mainstream environmental policy paradigm, the mainstream approach is overemphasizing considerations of effectiveness of environmental policy and is underemphasizing concerns of justice and concerns of democracy legitimacy. This is, again, the mainstream. There is, of course, a debate on environmental justice for a long time, climate justice, ecological democracy, of course. I mean, so many people have looked at those, but if I look at the mainstream community, I still believe the focus has been on effectiveness, even though the key challenges are actually challenges of injustice and inequality, which are very, very important. They are, in my understanding, central to the challenges of earth system governance. And therefore, I believe that the traditional paradigm of environmental policy needs to be replaced because it does not sufficiently emphasize questions of inequality and illegitimate behavior of actors. Number three, I believe that um, framing issues of planetary transformation, such as climate change, for example, as environmental problems, has led to an unnecessary marginalization of these concerns. Because environmental policies in many surveys, but also in governmental policies, are quite often not at the center of attention. Environmental policies traditionally are always often secondary concerns for people, but also for political actors, governments, etc. And putting these fundamental issues such as climate change into this environmental policy box, as they quite often are being framed, not always, I think has been a problem. And it's one of the many, many explanations for the ineffectiveness of climate policies, which are essential high politic issues 
that are not to be marginalized in little boxes of environmental policy. And thirdly, or fourthly, I believe that also the environmental policy paradigm cannot really deal with many of the key issues that we are discussing today when we talk about the Anthropocene issues of transformation at planetary scale that are going beyond what has been studied so far in environmental policy. Also impacts that can be devastating. I mean, if you think about a world that is maybe two, three, four degrees warmer, this is such a total transformation of our planetary system uh, that goes far beyond whatever has been discussed in environmental policy, including the need to adapt to climate change and many other issues. And I think this is also not sufficiently captured by environmental policy, and therefore new ideas and new concepts are needed. And many colleagues, observers, institutions have come forward with new terms, and I pointed out many of them in, in my, my paper, such as planet politics, or geopolitics, many other issues have been raised, many other terms have been suggested. Uh, and one of the new terms is the, the term of Earth System Governance that I proposed and many others have supported in the Earth System Governance project. And I believe this could be a new perspective that is maybe replacing the traditional environmental policy paradigm. I mean, if environmental policy is is insufficient as a, as a paradigm, is also then... Um Environmental justice, is that also insufficient? I mean, you introduced this term, planetary justice. How do you distinguish that from environmental justice? And perhaps uh, to connect to that, also the idea of planetary boundaries. What's the relationship between planetary justice and planetary boundaries, which, of course, is one of the flagship concepts of Earth system science? Perhaps you can just give us a better, uh, a more um, full-spectrum idea of your way you connect these concepts, these scientific concepts, these social concepts, and why some of them are insufficient and others are better uh, geared towards policy solutions. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Good. This was a broad question, very important one. Um, let me start with planetary boundaries. Uh, which is a concept um, that uh, has been developed in, in, in 2009, before a little bit, but 2009 was the most important publication of a group of scientists who argue that we have nine boundary conditions and planetary scale uh, that would, if uh, these values would be transgressed, uh, move the planetary system into a new state. And this is the planetary boundaries idea, that there are boundaries and we are not supposed to violate them. This is well known. I think most people who are listening to this podcast will be familiar with the concept of planetary boundaries. Very much related to Earth system science, no doubt. I mean, people who have advanced the concept of planetary boundaries are largely also those who have advanced the idea of an integrated Earth system science. So there's a huge overlap in, in terms of community. It comes from the natural science originally. So on the face of it, I mean, this is, of course, it's, it's, a, it's a very important, very valid idea that there are certain tipping points in the planetary system and that tipping them by human activities could lead to a rapid, a relatively rapid change of planetary systems. Um, my critique, and this is a critique that I have published uh, last year together with a colleague, uh, Rakun Kim from Utrecht University, the critique here is that the concept of planetary boundaries as it is um, currently or traditionally framed is marginalizing social considerations. It marginalizes social boundaries. It does not sufficiently take into account inequalities. Uh, so social concerns such as poverty, such as health, such as um, all kind of inequalities are not sufficiently taken into account, I believe. 
and lead to a marginalization of these terms because it gives a framing that certain natural science phenomena are more important than, than others, which are actually equally important. For example, people who are uh, affected by hunger, for example, it, it's equally important than any long-distance potential change in, in tipping points and planetary boundaries. That's number one. And number two is the question about how to define these planetary boundaries. I mean, it's straightforward, for example, in the case of ozone depletion, that is one of the planetary boundaries, which is largely related to natural science knowledge, earth system science knowledge. But I think it's much more complicated when you talk about land use. It's much more complicated when you talk about the use of fresh water, which are issues where interconnectivity at a global level is, is more complex and where social values and social use and inequalities in human use are much more important. Uh, so here, the definition of a boundary for land, water, and these issues, or also anything on ecosystems and biodiversity in the different versions of this concept, are much more complicated, they're much more difficult, and they're much more social. And this is a very important point because the social aspect, the human aspects, are not sufficiently taken into account in these boundary drawing activities, I believe. And this relates to the most important critique or suggestion we have for the planetary boundaries concept, which is the question of who decides. I mean, who decides on these values in areas where science is uncertain? where values are uncertain, and where natural and social processes are inherently intertwined. So who is taking a decision? And here, the critique we voiced in our article is that it should not be experts who decide this. It should not be Western scientists. It should not be senior professors who take these decisions and framing partially value-oriented decisions, partially social systems-oriented decisions, and framing them as science. I believe this is inherently wrong. So therefore, I would believe, uh, we argue, that targets and goals in whatever form they are needed and they are to be defined should be decided in multi-stakeholder deliberations or even intergovernmental processes. Multi-stakeholder deliberation is, for example, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which have been decided formally by governments, but in the interaction and involvement of many societal actors. And uh, intergovernmental agreements is, for example, the, the climate goal from the Paris Agreement, which is also, in a way, a definition of a planetary boundary, but not by experts, not by Western scientists from OECD countries, but they have been decided, has been decided by the community of all countries together, and they have set a goal, and they have defined the 2 degree or the 1.5 degree targets. Based on science, of course, but the final decision has been taken by governments. And the reason why this is so important is that we at Utrecht have done substantial research recently, uh, together with many other colleagues, um, on biases in global sustainability science and also in global stability civil society, between north and south. So we have looked at Germans, we have looked at scientific assessments, we have looked at scientific production in general, and always found a tremendous bias in favor to the global north. So the scientific knowledge is very much driven by people from the OECD countries and rich institutions in the north, 
they are not necessarily representing the views of the South. So whenever the pure natural science analysis is being replaced by analysis that brings in values and social systems, then I believe it should not be a purely scientific process, but a process that involves stakeholders from the entire globe and a substantial and strong involvement of people from the global south. And this is not the case so far in the planetary boundaries approach, and this is what we have criticized in this approach for that reason. This north-south perspective has been around uh, since at least uh, since the, the years before the 1972 Stockholm Conference and has characterized much of the work on on climate through the UNFCCC. It's, it's kind of one of these issues that never seems to go away. I mean, you mentioned that the SDGs are there, Frank, and um, I've read also some critique about those favoring too much towards economic development and not enough emphasis on environmental protection. I, I think this is kind of a fundamental dilemma in, in global environmental governance is kind of the basis of it in many ways. I mean, how do you reconcile that? I mean, do you have any from the research and the work you've done in your project, given the boundaries? And I think your, your criticisms are quite valid about planetary boundaries. But is there any way to reconcile this, this need, this legitimate demand for development, which is based largely on economic activity and the the imperative to protect the environment, to stay within these planetary boundaries? How do we reconcile this, especially now with this after this 15 months of pandemic and all the tensions that's that's really mm-hmm. brought to light? I mean, is there any really realistic, practical way forward, uh, given these enormous historical and contemporary tensions? Thank you. Well, this is a broad and very important question. In my previous answer, I might have given the impression that the SDGs are the solution, and I believe in principle they are in practice not, because also the SDGs are surely not perfect. And there are lots of criticisms also to be raised against the vis-a-vis the, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And I'm, I'm basing my, my comment here on a project that we have at Utrecht University, the larger ESC-funded project called the Global Goals Project, in which we study over five years the impacts and steering effects of the sustainable development goals at global and national and local governance. And I think there are three points to be made about the SDGs. One is regarding their creation. One is regarding their framing of their setup the system of SDGs, and the third one is regarding the actual effects. I mean, three points of criticism. As regarding the creation, I think it's certainly better than the goals that came out of the planetary boundaries process. It's certainly better than any other project that follows the planetary boundaries, such as the science-based targets or Earth system targets, and these approaches that are, again, very much science-driven. So the SDGs are better because they involve governments and they involve stakeholders. But the criticism here is that also the involvement of stakeholders has not been perfect. So we have done studies on civil society involvement, for example, in general and in the creation of the SDGs. And again, we find a huge dominance through a variety of mechanisms of global North actors. And actually a paper forthcoming in the global policy that is analyzing this particular uh, question and, and looks at the biases in which interest and through funding, through through training, through participation of the global north is much stronger than the interest and the representation of the global south. So this is a shortcoming that the civil society in UN processes is not sufficiently taking into account uh, representation of global south actors and interests. Number two is the internal consistency, and you're absolutely right in what you mentioned, that uh, you can read the SDGs in many different ways. 
Um, you can read them as an extremely progressive, um, transformative document, in particular in context with the Agenda 2030. Um, but on the other hand, they have a clear target of economic growth uh, that needs to be prioritized. I and mean, this is also one of the targets. So there's kind of, on the one hand, they say we need to have decarbonization. On the other hand, they say we need to have economic growth. On the other hand, again, let's say biodiversity protection, uh, relocation of poverty. In a sense, the, the goals want to achieve all. And many people argue that you cannot have it all. You can't have strong economic growth and at the same time climate protection, for example. And this criticism has been made. And um, and there is this internal inconsistency that has to do with the origin of the SDGs, where many actors could just put in their priorities in many ways. And also internally, of course, I mean, if you just look at SDG 16 or some others, also it is quite a hot pot of different ideas that were just shown in in the, in, in the negotiations and not extremely consistent sometimes. And this leads to the problem of implementation. To what extent could these goals actually have an impact and effect on governance? And here we have studied this with quite some efforts since 2000. Uh, we have studied this for the last two years, but we looked at the period from 2015 when the goals have been agreed, and we didn't find many impacts so far. We found change to the better. This is there. I mean, there are in certain countries or in international governance, you find improvements on certain indicators but not necessarily related to the goals. So it's not necessary that countries have chosen to take the one policy or the other policy or the one improvement or the other improvement because the UN came up with the sustainable development goals. Uh, and we didn't find much change in terms of institutional um, measures at country level or the UN level. I mean, there is change there. That's, I don't want to say that the SDGs have no impact whatsoever, but we don't find evidence that are really game-changing at the global or national level in any country. So we don't find it. We find discursive changes here and there. We find also some changes, but it's not that the world has become a totally different place because of the SDG. It's not the global governance or governance in any country has fundamentally been changed because of the SDG. This effect has not been achieved by the goals so far. Uh, and this is problematic, of course. This is a problematic because it shows in a way that this goal-setting process governance by global goals, which are non-binding, qualitative, um, sometimes a bit vague, is not necessarily um, leading to the change that we actually need in the next 10, 20 years. On the other hand, if I might add this, um, there might be also some negative impacts of these goal-setting processes in terms of cherry-picking or SDG-picking that certain actors are presenting themselves as implementing the goals while implementing only one or two goals or only for some targets, neglecting the overall integrated approach of the goals. This is one problem. Uh, a second problem that we observe is also that maybe the goals leading lead to um, uh, the increased legitimacy for actions which are maybe not necessarily leading to sustainability. So this is what we call a smokescreen effect, that goals are creating the impression that action is being taken. The SDGs create the impression that actors are changing their behaviors. Corporations, for example, can claim that they are engaging with the SDGs, they put them on the website, they put them in their glossy brochures, but not necessarily 
implementing any changes or substantial changes. And that gives the impression that a lot is happening, that policy change is occurring because of the SDGs, but it's not necessarily there in empirical fact. And that is a problem. So the smokescreen effect is one of the dangers I see with the SDGs. Um, so here again, uh, unfortunately, I have some criticism. So, um, but this is maybe part of the political science task to always have criticism of everything in a way and trying to find the, the, the least um, in, insufficient option in the end. I mean, if, if transformation is the goal for, I mean, let's say not, not a goal, but the more the overarching goal, transformation of people's ways of life and, and of systems, how do you approach that? I mean, is that something that can be done through something like, not maybe the SDGs per se, but something like a multi-stakeholder intergovernmental process? Or do we just have to fall back on technology or cultural change? I mean, I mean, where do you think we should look for transformation? It's a big area of research in the research sector that you're in. Where where do we start and maybe where do we go from there? Well, there's not one silver bullet, of course. I mean, it's not one uh, solution. I think in general, I think what's important is to, I mean, I think cultural change is important, but it's not coming by itself. So I think this individualization of sustainability and climate change is important, but absolutely not the key solution. So just um, so I think what we need is to have structural change, and structural change requires governmental action. So I think that the main um, so we need strong states, I believe, and uh, led by progressive governments. The question is how to get those, but we need states and state action to um, deal with these challenges by means of taxation, by means of regulation, and by means of changes in the in the economic and social behavior on the national level and the global level. So I think we have to address, by by means of governmental action, these huge inequalities. We have to address consumer behavioral changes by governmental public action, regulation, and taxation. Um, for example, one, one element, let's say, it's meat. The meat is certainly it's not a silver bullet, but the consumption of meat, beef, uh, has a huge environmental impact in terms of use of land, emissions of, of methane and others. It has a huge impact also on, on the provision of, of food in competition with this land, uh, land that could be used for many other purposes with better environmental impact. So in a sense, there's huge negative impacts of the consumption, of the vast consumption, and excessive consumption of, of meat, and, and not really many benefits in a way. So it's even bad for uh, overconsumption. This is negative for your health. So therefore, this is a clear case in a way, but changes, I believe, really require here um, governmental action to change the behavior of people and to change consumption. It could be taxes. Which could be increasing regulations in terms of organic farming, for example, in, in many ways. So um, I think these are important. Uh, so changing the neoliberal economic default that the market will fix all kind of problems and the market will make us all happier and make everybody rich uh, changes into the understanding that the market produces too many negative outcomes and requires massive steering by political actors. I think that's one important um, point. Uh, it's not a silver bullet as such, but I think that's very important to point this out. So the end of neoliberal capitalism, I think, is an important conclusion to, to address many of these challenges. 
And one silver bullet that you've done some work on, Frank, uh, that, well, let's, let's not call it a silver bullet, but I think some people want it to be a silver bullet uh, or a fallback option or a safety net or something, but uh, the idea of geoengineering. Now, is this something that can be incorporated into global environmental governance, or do you really consider that beyond the pale, something that just can't be considered because of just the enormous risks that it entails, and even perhaps something that shouldn't even be tested or experimented with. Of course, there was this recent um, this recent controversy here in Sweden about uh, they wanted to test uh, just the possibility of, uh, of injecting sulfur into the stratosphere, but uh, a test that was canceled or at least postponed. What do you think about geoengineering? Is this something that global environmental governance can include or should it just be entirely ruled out? Oh, thank you so much for, for this question. It's really very dear to my heart. And I'm working with many colleagues of developing political positions, science-based positions in this area. Uh, and I think the geoengineering in general has become so important on the agenda already that it requires urgent action by and consideration by, by governments and also scientists and anybody who is listening to this program. I think it cannot be ignored. Importantly, and that's very important, of course, uh, the term geoengineering covers many, many, many different ideas. And I think from a political, not ethical, and uh, other environmental considerations, uh, there are different answers to different technologies that are being proposed. Uh, the main co- distinction that is being made and also has to be made is between technologies that are removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by plants, by industrial processes. It's called carbon dioxide removal. That's one huge cluster of technologies that are being discussed. Um, And the other cluster of technologies is um, solar radiation management, or also called solar radiation modification, or it's also called solar geoengineering. These are different terms. And the core idea is to block a part of the sunlight. Uh, to in order to cool the planet. And um, the analog that is sometimes proposed is a volcanic eruption. Uh, so we know from, from past volcanic uh, eruptions that um, the emissions um, of uh, different particles from these volcanoes uh, have, I mean, they're distributed around the planet and they have cooled the planet for a certain period of time. Not for long, but for some time, they managed to to cool the planet off. And some people say this is, we should go in this direction also to do this artificially. So not waiting for volcanoes, but have the same impact for many, many decades, centuries, maybe even. So these are two different approaches. The one is carbon dioxide removal, and the other one is solar radiation management. And I have a different position for each one of them. For solar radiation management, I believe it needs to be banned, pinned out. That's kind of what I believe. Um, the reason is, I mean, on a planetary scale, there are some discussions of having solar radiation management at a local scale, for example, to protect a coral reef, for example, and I'm pretty agnostic about that. But I believe that the planetary implementation and deployment of solar radiation approaches, technologies, uh, is absolutely dangerous and should not be supported. Also not supported in the way of technology development. I think the technology should not be developed in the first place. And I'm not alone there. I'm working together with a group of colleagues. Uh, we, are approach, we are working together and we try to build up a coalition of colleagues to object and contest approaches to develop these technologies. And the reasons are, number one, that in the current situation, 
uh, where many actors are getting together and starting this decarbonization programs and more aggressive and more and more stronger climate policies. That here, um, this unproven and untested technology option of solar radiation management might give a perfect excuse for fossil fuel dependent actors such as the oil industry, fossil fuel industries, also countries that are very much supporting this technology, uh, these um, industries, uh, give them an excuse to delay the decarbonization. And I think this is a, it's a danger, sometimes being called moral hazard, but it is just the capture of these technologies by by those industries that have been originally supported the, uh, the denial of climate problems, that this could be one way to put the brakes in a way on the current waves of decarbonization policies. I think it's dangerous. Number two is that I believe that solar radiation management, solar geoengineering cannot be governed in a system in which um, all countries and all actors are sufficiently included. I mean, that would require a United Nations, a global organization that takes decision on how long these technologies are being employed, who is employing them, what happens if something goes wrong, uh, what are the temperature targets that we are going at, et cetera, et cetera. So there are so many important questions to be answered if we want to get on managing the global climate by means of artificial technologies, that all these questions require a degree of global governance that we do not have. Uh, it almost requires a, a functional kind of a world government that is dealing with these issues. And this we don't have. And I don't see it coming for the next 10, 20 years. What I see coming is an alternative that is some rich countries in the North are moving forward, implementing the technologies without involvement of the global South, without involvement of the global poor in a meaningful way. And I think this is a possibility. Some people call it like climate imperialism or solar geoengineering imperialism, that, that some countries take the decisions and all the other countries are still not able in any way to have an influence on this. Now, this, I think, is, a, is, a, is extremely dangerous and should be uh, avoided. And the third argument is, I believe it's just not necessary. I'm optimistic, so SRM, solar radiation management, is quite often advanced by people who are optimistic about the, the functionality of these technologies and the risk-free technologies, but very pessimistic about the implementation of the Paris Agreement and climate change policies, and I'm the opposite. I'm more optimistic about the, the success of the current climate policies that are being set up in place now, and much more pessimistic about the feasibility of hacking the climate by all kinds of technologies in, in the atmosphere, stratosphere, outer space, whatever. And I think this is just hubris of scientists. I'm very much concerned about this development. Uh, if I may, I can have a point about the other technology, which is carbon dioxide removal. This is a huge cluster of technologies. Again, it starts with just planting a tree. It's also kind of a way of getting carbon out of the atmosphere up to industrial processes of huge machines that are sucking it all out, uh, sucking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And there's huge debates about it, different technologies. And here, uh, I'm much more open to, to study these issues, uh, these technologies. Uh, another question is very important. I mean, that must be, of course, feasible. That's number one. So the impact should be much, um, must have positive impact and you don't want to have too many side effects. They should not have a negative impact. They should be governed in a way that they have no negative impact on decommunization programs. I think this is doable to a certain extent. And definitely, and that's very important, they must not have any negative impacts on the global poor. 
Uh, and this is in particular a problem when these technologies acquire land. Uh, this is the case by ideas of um, having certain plants, plantations, where the, the plants are um, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and then you use the plants and extract the carbon and put the carbon on the ground. Backs, is it called? These are some technologies that are possible. I mean, they're not fully in, in, invented, but this is not, not impossible. Uh, but they require huge amounts of land. And if this land will be in the global south, I'm very much um, against or at least very, very careful about these technologies because they might bring us into a competition with the production of food. And this brings us again in the, in the idea about why is so much land being used for meat production, for example. It's all a very integrated and, and, and complex situation. And this is why I believe that environmental policy is not the right paradigm to deal with this issue. This is all matters of, of governance of, of entire planetary social ecological system, the planetary scale. So this is why uh, I think Earth system governance is a much better paradigm to, to deal with these issues than just the old traditional environmental policy paradigm. In short, I think solar geoengineering is dangerous. Don't do it. Carbon dioxide removal, let's talk about it. I mean, this is certainly something that can be explored under certain conditions, which must be very strict. All right, so Frank, just to round things up now, um, we've talked quite a bit about the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. We're about halfway through that uh, Agenda 2030 initiative. We also have uh, about one year to go until the Stockholm Plus 50 conference, which hasn't been talked about that much yet, but I have a feeling that in the months ahead we'll hear more and more about that. Just to, just to sort of take stock on, on where we stand in terms of uh, global environmental governance and uh, the title of your professorship, Global Sustainability Governance, what are your hopes and expectations for the next 12 months and beyond? Well, first of all, I'm very happy that you used the term Stockholm Conference because I think that would be great. I definitely believe that it would be great to have a major event in Stockholm. I think to mark the Stockholm Conference in 72 and all the others, Johannesburg, what came later. And I believe that major international conferences can have an impact. And there's, of course, lots of just talking around, but, but I believe that bringing together leaders to such a big event has a galvanizing effect and can bring about certain change. I think uh, is, there's some debate in Sweden about whether to hold this conference or what form. I think generally it would be fantastic to have a conference in Stockholm in, in next year to discuss these kind of issues at the highest governmental level. That's number one. Number two is, I mean, what happens till then? That in the long term, I think that we are at one of the most crucial moments in human history, in a way, I mean, this may be a large claim, but uh, that many of the trends that are in place leading to unsustainability and unsustainable future, um, climate change is one of them, but also generally... Uh, Many other trends are not in the right direction. And many of the changes that we might experience at the planetary scale are irreversible. So we are remodeling, um, we meaning especially the rich people. So it's not, uh, we doesn't mean everybody is doing the, the, the same contribution as especially the overconsumption of rich uh, countries and, and rich societies uh, that is causing many of the problems that we have. And many of the problems are irreversible. So we are kind of remodeling the entire planet into a new state of operation. This is dangerous. And I think um, we have to, must avoid this. So, and I think the next 10, 20 years are the most fundamental years to deal with these challenges. 
And I think the corona crisis has shown that um, governments can take massive action if there's a threat in a way. And it was in this case the pandemic. I mean, there's of course also much to be criticized about how different countries have dealt with this and are still dealing with it at a global scale. It has shown that major threats can also lead to massive changes in behavior, uh, stopping of flight, uh, commuting, uh, stopping massive commuting to, to work, for example, and uh, many changes uh, in, in consumption. Um, and uh, I think lots of change has been enacted because of the pandemic that was not necessarily bad. I mean, not that we should go back to lockdowns in a sense, but many of the changes, like the reductions in emissions by, by travel, for example, are positive. And uh, they show that also a change is possible. And I am very optimistic that the next 10, 20 years, the very, very crucial period of time, the youth climate movement and many other movements behind will allow us to steer the planet in the right directions, that we can deal with all these challenges in a, in a democratic and hopefully also just way at a planetary scale. And I'm very optimistic that these kind of changes in governance are possible. But they have to be strong and they have to be soon. And the situation is certainly urgent. And if this is not working out, then the geoengineering people will kind of take it all in their hand at some point. And this is not a future that I want to leave to my children. Well, Professor Frank Biermann, Professor of Global Sustainability Governance at Utrecht University and founder of the Earth System Governance Project, we certainly appreciate your optimism, not always uh, the case when speaking to experts on global environmental issues and also, with, of course, a touch of, of realism as well. So thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast and hope to speak to you again in the future. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover by Keith Foster. Sphere is supported by the European Research Council under the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme.